0: Let's be still and few, for a few moments in prayer. Our Father, we have again been witness to your amazing grace in our lives. We thank you for salvation. We thank you for your patience with us. We thank you for your, your great love demonstrated to us through the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. And so, O God, we come this morning thanking you for the privilege it's been to celebrate your greatness and to lift up our voices in praise, to acknowledge you as the God of gods, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God who saves lives. And Lord, we are here this morning because of your great salvation for us. Not because we deserve it, but because you are gracious and merciful to us. And Lord, as a response to your mercy and your grace, I pray that our hearts would be open now to hear from your word. What do you have for us, O God? We wait for you. You are our Lord and our master, and we love you. And we pray, Lord, that our lives would reflect uh, the thanksgiving of our hearts, uh, because you are the God we love, and we know you love us. And so we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I love baptism services. I just love them. It is so powerful to hear the present work of the Lord Jesus Christ in, in hearts of men and women. Is it not? And uh, the three this morning were such a blessing. And now these two, the this, this second service. Uh, just a delight to see what God is doing in people's lives. And to hear the testimony of God's people. We need to testify to each other about what God has done in our lives. That God, Christ is alive and he still changes hearts and he saves people. And we don't, we, we don't give up because God changes people. And people who we love in our lives, we don't give up on. You know, as we've been going through this, uh, this book of Corinthians, we've now come to the sort of this sign-off part where the Apostle Paul is writing the end of his letter. And I must admit that as I was... Turning the page in my Bible to look at chapter 16. Um, having looked through with you all that has been described of the church at Corinth, a, a church that was filled with worldly values and favoritism and sexual immorality, abuse of the supernatural and lawsuits, marital failures, incest, pornography, and demonic partying, chaotic church services relational bullying, um, challenging of leadership. As I was turning the page, I was thinking that the Apostle Paul would write something like this. In light of what I have discovered in the church at Corinth, I must tender my resignation as an apostle of that church. I want nothing more to do with you It's not about you, it's about me. No, no, it's about you. I just don't want to have anything to do with you anymore. But that's not what I found. That's not what I discovered. That's not what you discover if you read this last chapter, the chapter 16. In fact, you find it's full of grace and full of love and full of optimism and full of encouragement. This messy, messy church is the church that paul loves and cares for and refuses to give up on and why is it that paul refuses to give up on the church of corinth because he knows the lord jesus christ and he knows the jesus who didn't give up on him and therefore he refuses to give up on those who christ loves And it's a beautiful story, an amazing story, the story of all of our lives, and I've entitled it A Church Makeover, When Mess Meets Grace. And um, Paul writes this in the second letter to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 24, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. So, he says, I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you, for if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? He has all kinds of optimism that they're going to make his heart leap for joy. I wrote as I did so that when I came, I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy, for I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears not to grieve you but to let you know the depth of my love for you how that's powerful stuff that's who the Lord is that's how the Lord presents himself to us let's face it Corinth isn't the only mess we're a mess it's the story of us It's the story of our lives. We live lives that are messy. And the Lord Jesus Christ, by His amazing grace, doesn't give up on us. But He continues to pursue us. Continues to woo us back to Himself. Continues to dust us off and clean us up and put us back in the race. And and, and continues to love us. Not because we deserve it. But because He is a gracious and kind and long-suffering God full of mercy who longs to see you grow and love him and know him. We're all a mess. And I am resolved that, that the, the final description of my life will not be a mess. And I'm resolved that the final description of all of your lives will not be a mess because of the stubborn love of Jesus Christ who will not let us go and will continue to grow us and continue to grow us into his likeness. And he will be patient with us even when we are not faithful to him and this is a praise to the glory of our lord jesus christ this morning and so i i want to share with some thoughts with you about the whole reality of when a church sputters which clearly the church of corinth could be uh, accused of when the church sputters it's because the body parts have gone rogue the body of christ is meant to work together in harmony and, and, uh, and uh, applying good theology and loving one another. But when a church comes unglued, when a church starts to unravel and become really messy like the church at Corinth, it's because the body parts have gone rogue. But one thing I know, we don't cut and run because there's some sputtering going on. We don't cut and run away from each other because there's some mess. We stay at it because the Lord Jesus Christ stays at it. The Apostle Paul has shown us and demonstrated this to us. And, and as I looked at what, how Paul describes his final um, uh, sign-off here, he seems to identify three major areas that he wants to highlight as the final sort of concluding remarks at this point in this letter. And uh, they seem to be this. He, he's identifying what seems to be wrong with the church overall. And the first is this, a myopic vision or a stunted vision. Uh, they were self-centered people on steroids, they, they longed to look in the mirror day in and day out and say, mirror, mirror, on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? And, of course, they were staring at the fairest in their minds. And they were incredibly self-centered people. That will cause a church to come unglued. The second uh, seems to be disrespect of leadership. When you read this, you realize that, that they are at odds with the Apostle Paul. He can say at the end, and he does say at the end, I love you, I love you, I love you, but they weren't loving him back. There was a decided disrespect of leadership. And let's understand something. Christianity is about authority. And the reason I say that is because when, we, when you heard these testimonies in the baptismal tank, the one first question that was asked is have you received, the Lord Je- have you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Christ must be the king of our lives. He must be the Lord of our lives. And so the Lord establishes patterns and structures within the church of Jesus Christ that might teach us all what it is to respect Christ as Lord of our lives. And they had a a, a clear um, distrust or disgust for leadership. And it was stunting them in terms of their relationship with the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It always will. And the third thing that seems to be a problem here is their decided lack of community, embraced convictions. They weren't all on the same page theologically, that's for sure. And uh, we live since we live out what we believe, it is absolutely critical that we believe the truth. And that we believe the truth together. And that we, be- that we believe the same truth together. There is only one truth, and we need to believe it. And so they, ha- they were all over the page. So... So uh, this morning, with the time that we have left, I, I want to uh, talk to you about how to fire up the flawed church, how to fire up the flawed church. And there's three basic premises, as I said, that he deals with here. And, and the first is this, the first starts with this question, do you want to go from being a self-centered person to a spirit-filled, mission-driven person? Okay, a couple of you do, that's... that, that uh, That makes me want to skip the first point and just move on to the second. It's important, don't you think, that we move from being a self-centered person to a spirit-filled, mission-driven person and church. And that's what he points out here. He talks here about developing a vision beyond yourself. To develop a vision beyond yourself. And the only antidote that seems to move us from self-indulgence is to self-giving and self-sacrifice. And so he uh, moves us into the text here and he says, now about the collection for God's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then... When I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. It seems to me that this uh, um, section here where the Apostle Paul is trying to move them from being self-centered, is he's teaching them biblical principles that are found in the Old Testament scriptures and throughout the Bible of God's global economy. You've heard of the G7? You've heard of the G8? Have you heard of the G3? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's the most important conference in all the universe. When you're talking about global economy, the G3 is all that really matters. And Christ here, uh, through the Word of God, is teaching us uh, what it means to develop a vision beyond ourselves. And He teaches us that we're to move from our own prosperity to contribute to the global economy. Christian economy Uh, God has this global family of people and at any given time there are people within the family of God who are richly prospering there are people in other parts of the world who are not doing so well not necessarily because of themselves but because of the circumstances with which they live in. They live in harsh countries or a circumstance that's come upon their own lives, of, uh, not of their own fault. And God has this amazing challenge for all of us, this amazing global economic balance whereby those who prosper are to help those who are in need. That's how God works in his family. That's how God ministers throughout the world. And, and he's told us in this letter that they are to help out in the church in Jerusalem. Now, the church in Jerusalem had gone through some really hard times there had been a famine there historically at this time so it was already economically depressed not only that many of the people who were formerly part of the synagogue had now come to know christ and once they had come to know christ guess guess what happens to them they're kicked out of the synagogue and if a widow was in the synagogue and had come to know christ and was now kicked out of the synagogue there was no social safety net in jerusalem in the first century she was on her own and if her family didn't know christ there was no one to look after her And so the church in Jerusalem was in great need. And Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, listen, he doesn't tell them this, but the way to to get rid of your self-centeredness in your life is to meet the needs of others. The way to understand the needs of others is to meet the needs of others. And so he gives this pattern, this developed pattern here, which is to be, we are to give to help out in the great cause of Christ regularly. It says here, On the first day of the week each one regularly on the very first day of the week every week uh, to give a habitual practice in other words that doesn't mean that if you're if your pay period is once a month that doesn't mean oh you've got to no that's not what it's saying here it's just regularly habitually uh, it's a pattern of giving a pattern of being generous and the first day of the week We can see here that the early church, the primitive church, had moved from the Sabbath as the day of gathering. They had moved to the first day of the week. They had moved to Sunday as the gathering. That was a celebration of resurrection day when Christ Jesus rose from the grave. And they wanted to make sure that they emphasized that and celebrated it once a week. And so they gathered together. And gave. It also says here and teaches us that it should be proportionately. Notice what the phrase here says. On the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. Or literally, as you have prospered. It doesn't teach us in the New Testament a percentage. It doesn't teach us in the New Testament an amount. It teaches us that we should give out of our prosperity. As God has prospered you, so give to help in the cause of Jesus Christ. Now the North American average in the evangelical church world is 3% of income. The average in Calvary Baptist Church is 5% of income. You have to, and I have to ask myself the question, am I actually giving out of my prosperity or am I not? And we have to ask ourselves the question of, am, am I prospered by the Lord in order to give to make disciples or give to cause distractions in my life? Am I prosper, prospered by the Lord to to uh, Give money toward ministry or to give money toward causing me to be a further a greater materialist And so when we're asking the question of proportionate and what I should give and and, and how I should embrace this generous call To be uh, meeting the needs of other people. I need to ask that question. What should I be doing? What does generosity look like? What in my life Definitely declares my love for Christ's family and what he's about And it should be be locally and globally. In fact, the real translation is here now about the collection for the saints. The collection for the saints. God's global church first. God's people first. In Galatians 6.10, it says, Do good to all men, but especially to the household of God. And so the expectation here is that we'll we'll, uh, see the needs around us, see the needs in God's church locally and globally. They were to give to their spiritual parents first. They were to give back to Jerusalem, back to the Jews. The gospel had come from the Jews, and they were supposed to make sure they took care of of their spiritual parents and those in authority over them, those who were workers, those who were devoting their lives full time to watching over their souls. That's God's economy. They were to give to those who were damaged and disenfranchised as believers, especially the household of God. We're to lay up our treasures in heaven where rust and moth and and, uh, thieves cannot get, Matthew 6, chapter 20. It says in Luke 16, verse 9, Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. That's a great verse. Luke 16, 9. You ought to look at that, stare at that, meditate about it. That's great wisdom about how we ought to conduct our lives. Well, he moves on to the second aspect, and that's found in verses 5 through 12. You'll notice here, he says, After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you for I will be going through Macedonia, perhaps I will stay with you a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work is open to me and there are many who oppose me. If Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you. For he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should refuse to accept him. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I'm expecting him along with the brothers. Now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urge him to go to you uh, with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has opportunity. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. And they had devoted themselves to the service of the saints. I urge you, brothers, to submit to such as these and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus arrived, because they have supplied what was lacking from you. For they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The second um, emphasis that he draws out as he concludes this uh, letter to this messy church is you need to take direction from outside of yourselves. You need to learn to take direction from outside of yourselves. As we've been studying, we recognize that there's been a continual collision between the church of Corinth and the Apostle Paul. They were about themselves, which was leading them into sin, and the Apostle Paul was about Christ and his mission, which leads us and calls us to sacrifice. And Paul here establishes a leadership mission passion that the church ought to embrace. And the two emphases that I see grow out of this section that were front and center of the Apostle Paul's heart were these, evangelism and discipleship. He said these two things are critical If you want to be a part of Christ's adventure, if you want to be a church that cleans up the mess and moves forward for God, listen, if you show me a sputtering church, and I will show you a church that downplays evangelism and downplays discipleship. You show me a church that's moving forward with Christ, and I'll show you a church that upsizes evangelism and upsizes discipleship. That's the passion of Jesus Christ. That's the great command that he gave us, that's what the Apostle Paul has burdened in his heart. And so he says, my leadership passion is to, I'm going to go to Macedonia, and, and uh, on my way, I, I, I'm, I'm going to come and visit you, and I want to take some time with you, but I'm in Ephesus right now in a great Uh, door of opportunity is open for me to the gospel and I don't want to leave there and basically he's saying to them, get over yourselves, I'm going to come and visit you but the passion for evangelism the passion for discipleship and what God is doing, how God's leading me I need to follow through with that I love you, I'm going to come to see you but I don't want you to get all upset when the plans take some adjustment because I'm following the lead of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's my master and I'm going at his timetable and I want you to accept that. And that's why he's saying this to them. He's sort of giving them this lead letter so they won't be upset with him. We are not managers, but adventurers, redeeming creation, enlarging the Garden of Eden. That's what we're called to do. So he wants them to to be patient. And then he says, when I come to you, I don't want to just sort of do a flyby visit. I want to spend some time with you. I might be there for the winter. I I, I want to spend some time discipling you. I want to teach you. I want to train you. I want to go over the things because clearly you haven't got some of the things that that I wanted you to to get at. And and I'm going to come to you. And and, uh, that's what discipleship is, basically. It's telling us over and over again the same thing. You you know, um, and we need that as people. Do, Do you remember being a kid when your parents would say to you, How many times have I had to tell you this? Right? Have most of us been at this? And and basically it's like, well, I guess you're going to have to tell me another time because it hasn't really sunk in. This is what discipleship is. How many times do I have to tell you the same things? Over and over and over and over again. That's good discipleship. It's quantity of time, not just quality of time. It's gathering together. It's being together for spiritual accountability. It's, it's getting together with smaller groups of people and, and allowing people to hold you accountable spiritually for your life. It's, it's about meddling in each other's lives. That's, that's what discipleship is. It's very important. It's doing life together. This is what this whole series is about. Doing life together is a lifetime adventure. You never grow out of it. You never grow up past it. Because we have to check on each other. We have to keep check of each other. We have to go to each other and say, hey, stick it out. I know it's tough right now, but I'm, I'm going to be there for you. I'll pray with you. I'll, I'll hold you up. But stick it out. Don't give up on Jesus. Because Jesus won't give up on you. So don't give up on him. And this is what Paul says. I'm coming back to you. Even though you've been really rotten to me, I'm still coming back to see you and be with you. And I want you to, uh, you'll you'll help me out. I know you're going to help me out when I come to see you. And there's lots of opportunities that are are set before me in in Ephesus. And uh, I want you to know that there's lots of opposition there as well. Now some of us would say, well, if there's opposition, maybe Paul's doing the wrong thing. No, it's quite the opposite. Again, if God's people are busy... Following hard after the Lord Jesus Christ, opposition will dog you day and night. Because Satan doesn't like giving away territory. He doesn't like giving us up. He doesn't like giving anything. And so a church that is passionate about evangelism and discipleship should anticipate all kinds of opposition. Opposition is a message that the evil one is opposed to what we're doing. That means the Holy One must be happy with what we're doing. Now, of course, you can create opposition by doing stupid things as well. But that's not what the Apostle Paul's talking about here. A great, he's talking about a great door of opportunity as open to me, and there's lots of opposition. Of course, the two go hand in hand. And so he says here that um, I want you to be passionately following. The passions that are mine but also he wants them to recognize that there are leader ministry directives that they should follow he's pointing out to them that there's all kinds of plans that he's got going this isn't random although he's following along with the lord there's plans he's making he's always looking at looking ahead the apostle paul always had horizons in his mind he was always looking for more territory that that could be claimed for christ in fact when he got to rome he says i can't wait till i get to spain he was always one country ahead of himself. He never got to Spain. He never got to Spain. He died before he got to Spain. But he had a vision of getting to Spain and telling them the gospel. Well, who is it that got to Spain? Somebody did. Because somebody got to Canada. Somebody brought the gospel here. So somebody got to Spain. It was people who had a vision, who carried on the vision of their leader, the directus of the Apostle Paul, and moved forward. So don't allow your preferences to bog down great possibilities be open to what God is doing be open to what doors God is opening my definition of advancement is this the intersection of assets and opportunity and good leaders great leaders are constantly encouraging each of us to prepare ourselves, to have the resourcefulness that we need for the opportunity that might arrive so that when that opportunity arrives and resources are available, advancement can take place. When that house beside us, 344, became available, we seized the moment, we seized the day and, and, and took that house for more ministry advancement, opportunities to expand the ministry, expand discipleship, expand opportunities. When that how a church across the road became available to us. Resources combined with opportunity come together for advancement, to cause the cause of Christ, to move the cause of Christ ahead, to advance the cause of Christ. Getting you ready is what leaders do, good leaders do, is get us ready for those doors that will come open. Those are ministry opportunities of a lifetime to take those situations and turn them into the cause of Christ. That's what. God's people are called to do. John MacArthur says this, and I totally agree with him, we should not expect the Lord to open doors of greater ministry in time or eternity if we have not entered doors he has already opened for us. That's a classic statement, a classic leadership statement of simply seizing the opportunity that God gives you with the resources He gives you as He has prospered you to advance the cause of Christ. That's the history of Calvary Baptist Church. And I trust it will be the legacy of Calvary Baptist Church long after many of us are no longer here as we continue to to, to hold Him up as, as the faithful one. The task then of leaders is that at the end of your life it may be said of you they were living by faith when they died. Always looking for how we can move forward and advance the cause of Christ and sometimes the opportunity isn't necessarily the one that we think it would be or should be Christ has a way of of changing our plans or changing our vision or changing our ideas It's about being available and open to what God has for us David Livingston wanted to go to China Do you know where he ended up? Africa good, you know your missionary history So was it a bad idea that he ended up in Africa? I don't think so. It was God's idea. William Carey, the second Thomas, goes to India 200 years ago and opens up the land of India, opens up the cause of Christ. And today this church, 200 years later, is ministering the gospel still in the land of India and in the land of Africa because we stand on the shoulders of people who've seen opportunities and had the resources that God had provided and have advanced the cause of Christ. Leadership Directive leadership passion and the third is leadership respect it's no accident that he talks about timothy talks about apollos talks about Stephanus and fortunatus and Achaicus and he talks about aquila and priscilla it's no accident that he talks about great partners in the faith that he has with him their priority the priority of people who have given their lives for the gospel is you you The church of Jesus Christ is the priority of leaders who've given their lives for the gospel, for the cause of Christ. And so they ought to, Paul says here, they ought to be treated with respect. They ought to be be, um, recognized for their ministry. They ought to be um, treated with with, um, 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 uh, great respect, as I said. And he points out a couple of things here that are really critical. He talks about Timothy. He says, now when Timothy shows up, I want you to be nice to him. Now, why does he have to say that? Because he knows how the church at Corinth had treated him. They had treated him miserably. And so, if he sends his deputy named Timothy, they might take it out on Timothy. And he says, Listen, don't you be messing with Timothy. This young man who's gone out in the name of the Lord, don't you ruin his heart for the gospel, don't you ruin his heart for ministry. I want you to make sure you treat him really well. I don't want him to be discouraged before he even gets out of the gate. Man, listen, we need to listen to this kind of stuff. You know, when I go over there and see 187 young people worshiping the Lord on Thursday night instead of the myriad of other things they could be doing, I don't want to be messing with that. I don't want to be discouraging those guys. I want to be encouraging them and building them up, and ladies, and ladies as well. I want to be encouraging them. Guys It's generic for ladies and men. I want to be encouraging them all. Don't you? Amen. A couple of you do. Personal convictions. He's talking about Apollos here. He says about Apollos, listen, I hate the clock. He talks about Apollos and, uh, and, and he says, listen, um, I don't want you to be upset with Apollos either. And it's not my fault that he hasn't come to see you. I'm not jealous because he's a better preacher than me. As some of you are thinking, I don't want to send him back because he, you know, he's a better preacher. That's not it. I, told, I asked him to go back. That's what he says in the Word. I asked him to go back. But he has personal convictions that it's not the right time, and he's a, he, he's a, a man I trust. He's a man who, who, who um, gets his message from the Lord, and I believe in his, his heart and his own personal convictions. He also talks about hardworking servants like Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. Total self-giving people in a self-centered church. He says, watch those people. Hold them up. They, They should be held up for special recognition because they're following the heart of Jesus Christ. He talks about Aquila and Priscilla and says, they're fantastic. They continue to welcome people into their house and have a church in their house. They sacrifice. That's a huge sacrifice to have a bunch of people tramping into your house all the time. And he says, you ought to pay attention to these kind of people who are showing the servant heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the kind of leaders you have. Don't spurn them. Don't rebel against them. Don't mistreat them. And by the way, he says, above all, don't look for easy. Look for where you can be useful. Most people in the world are always looking for a, 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 a real cream setting. You know, they'd read this Corinthians, you know, sent, Corinthians would send out a letter for a pastor. Be like, what? I'm not taking that church. Are you kidding me? That's a mess. Paul's like, that's the church you should take. Don't look for something easy in life, look for where Christ can use you most. It may be really difficult. Take that assignment. And then finally, he, he gives this really powerful verse verse 13 we'll wrap it up here and he gives five really powerful imperatives the third thing he says here is take back the body you were supposed to have he wants the church at Corinth to say enough this is ridiculous we're fighting against each other we're suing each other we're, we're, we're dabbling with sin we're, we're hanging out at demonic parties what is wrong with us We need to grab hold of ourselves and and shake ourselves as a church and say "We're, we're not gonna live like this anymore. This is not gonna be the description of our body. We're taking the body back that Jesus wants us to have. That's what every church has to come to a resolve that says we are not going to have a, 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 a body, a feeble, pathetic body that accomplishes nothing for the Lord Jesus Christ. We are going to be a force for Christ, and we're going to do it Christ's way. And so he gives these five final imperatives that are really, really critical. And the first one is this in verse 13 Be on your guard, or literally, wake up! Wake up! Spiritually and physically. Or sin will get the best of you. He is, uh, he is talking here uh, to people who've become dopey and, and dazed. They're wandering around in a spiritual and a physical fog. They need to grab hold of some spiritual smelling salts and put it under their nose and wake themselves up. Like You need to wake up because if you're going to live in this spiritual malaise, this spiritual dopiness... You are going to be sinful people. That's what's going to happen to you. And and, and the reason it's going to happen to you is because Satan is like a lion. He prowls around looking for who he can devour. And who do you think he's going to find to devour? Someone who's on fire for the Lord? Someone who's on top of it spiritually? Someone who's into the word of God on a daily basis? Someone who's got a prayer life like the Apostle Paul? That's not who Satan's going to look for. He can't get a hold of that person. He's going to go after this spiritually dopey person, the spiritually dazed person, the spiritually foggy person. He says, You got to wake up or sin is going to get the best of you. Be alert to the dangers. And the next thing he says is, Stand firm. Stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in what you have settled to be true. Stop waffling back and forth he says of them I've told you the things that are true stop waffling around take your stand on what I've given you take your stand on the truth of the word of God we're living in an age of people who are like they they don't they have no idea what they believe they're constantly in flux they're like well you know I I'm I'm just on a journey I, I I don't know what to think of God I'll tell you what to think of God. Come and ask me. I'll tell you what to think of him. You don't need to be on a journey. We've already got it in the Bible. Christ has, God has described himself. I, I have no problem with you being on a spiritual journey in the sense that Christ is leading you along and you're growing and all that. That's not the point. But don't be on a journey about truth. When people give you truth and you see it in the word of God, don't say, well, I'm still on a journey about that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna think about that. I'm, a, I'm in a state of discovery. Are you kidding me? <laughs> kidding me if... if, if you know if it states it's true here just settle into your heart stand firm on it have faith in what is true stop waffling around don't follow leaders who are waffling around who don't know what they're talking about the, the Word of God has already declared what is true you don't have to be like that 2,000 years of church history wrestling with theology There's there's some things that are pretty much established. We don't have to investigate and wonder if there's still true. I don't even know what I think about God anymore. I I hear the pastor of Mars Hill Church in Michigan saying, I don't even know what I think about God anymore. I'll tell you what you need to do. You need to leave that platform, get off it as fast as you can, and stop being a pastor. That's what you need to do. I know what I think about God. Don't you know what you think about him? He tells us who he is. We have it here. He says, stand firm. He says, grow up. Well, it doesn't exactly say that, but that's what it means. (laughs) Be men of courage. I've had to say that to a number of people who have come to see me. They don't like it, but I say two words. Grow up. That's what he says here. Grow up. Be courageous. In far too many churches, the nursery isn't where the babies are. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? In, in far too many churches, the nursery's maybe the most mature place of the church. <laughs> because everybody's whining and complaining, I'm not getting my way, I'm not getting my diapers changed, when are you going to change my diapers, when are you going to burp me? You know, what's, what's with that? He's saying, listen, you need to be men. It really literally says here, act like men. Now, ladies, I know that you, you might bristle at that, but I think, I think there are many ladies who act more like men than men who do in terms of their resolve, in terms, in terms of their heart convictions. That's what I'm talking about. In terms of standing on the truth, in terms of not wavering, in terms of being courageous and bold and taking an uncompromising stand. Their husband's pansying around beside them. Come on. It says here, put your big boy pants on and act like men. That's what Paul says here. Act like men. All right, all right. The men are... Men are fired up now the men are fired up <laughs> choose to be spiritually strong that's the fourth thing choose to be spiritually strong yeah, that's what he means here in this choose to be strong otherwise you will lose to the power of your flesh every time you're in a battle you are in a war you know this it's either the spiritual is gonna win or the flesh is gonna win every day of your life in fact every second of your life you can't afford to let up at all if you don't starve the flesh it will consume you. And you've got to feed the spirit in your life. You have to do that every day. If you do nothing, you will gravitate back to what you were. That's what happens. I, um, as a father, um, had to take the orthodontic route with all of my children, all three of them. I could have had a nice car if it wasn't for this. But I'm not bitter. They all have, all three of them have a cheesy smile that, uh, that I like to see regularly. Hey, that thing cost me a lot. Smile at me. <laughs> but when you get your teeth fixed, on the day you are emancipated, the day you are freed from the orthodontist and all the tinsel teeth thing, they give you something. It's called... Oh, you've been there too. It's called a retainer. And the retainer is for the purpose of what, Jordan? To keep your teeth straight. To make sure they don't go back to where they were before it cost me a car. Paul says, make sure you are paying attention to your heart with the Lord. Because if you don't, you will go back to the way you were. Ronnie, I want to know that he's wearing that retainer at night. (laughs) And then finally, love enough to confront. He says, do everything in love. Love enough to confront. Your mess and brokenness is wasting what you could have had. If you just do life God's way. So, do we love each other enough to confront, to uncover, to make sure? The grace of Christ is with us, he says. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. However flawed, we can become useful again. Our failures in the past do not define our grace-driven potential for the future. Why? Because his love never gives up, ever, He never gives up on us that's our christ that's how much he loves us and therefore i've decided to never give up on you either and i hope you'll never give up on me because that's what the body of christ does we never give up even in the mess because we know what the lord jesus christ can do with messy lives he can make them like christ's amazing life and that's what we're called to do our father we give this to you as an offering we give our lives our hearts and ask that you would remake us over and over again until the mess is no more and until we are like the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior who we love in Jesus name I pray amen well that's a good ask of the Lord that he might do that among us if we fail in any one of these three areas that we've talked about this morning you will not get to the goal of your heart you will remain unhealthy and you will lack joy so just a reminder of these questions to reflect on as we think about self-evaluation of our hearts and allowing them to be open to the Lord God are you really really invested in the gospel of Jesus Christ are you taking your prosperity and using it to cause you to be more distracted from the things of the Lord Or are you investing in discipleship and moving your heart toward the Lord? That's where your generosity needs to be. And how is it with you and leadership? Are you rebellious, disrespectful, objecting all the time? Or is your heart inclined to follow after and follow hard after those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ with all of their hearts? And the third is is this. Are you letting your part of the body become a mess? Because each of us are vital. Each of us are vital to the overall health of a church, this body. So these three things are critical as we leave this letter to the Corinthians, this doing life together in community and understanding what that is. Uh, These are critical for the health of advancing the cause of Christ. And I hope that the Spirit of God will minister to your heart with respect to these things. Oh, Father, I pray and thank you for loving us and caring for us and never giving up on us. We know that, that you, the Son of God, left heaven to join this mess and you never let us go. You never gave up on us and you keep on moving us forward, healing us, helping us, helping us when we fall back, picking us up, dusting us off, putting us back in the game. Oh, God, what an amazing and wonderful and gracious Lord you are. There is no God like you, and we praise you and we thank you, and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.